today uh, with the New Revival Times that's out. I just want to draw your attention uh, to a couple of new service, well, not new, well, new uh, themes that we have. Starting next Sunday on page four, we have two new series at the 2.30 and the 5 o'clock service. From next Sunday, the 2.30 service, we're going to be doing a two-month series on moving in the gifts of the Spirit. We're going to be looking at the nine gifts of the Spirit in Corinthians, things like faith and miracles and prophecy and healings. And what we will be doing is week by week, we'll be teaching on them, but not just teaching about them. We're seeking God to demonstrate them during the services, but also we want to release you into the gifts of the Spirit, or if you've already been involved in the gifts of the Spirit, to higher levels. So we're going to be talking about how you move in the gifts of the Spirit. How do you move in a word of knowledge or make yourself available? How does the word of knowledge operate, the word of wisdom? How do you make yourself available for God to use you to bring healing into someone's life? How do you step out into prophecy? And so that really is an equipping uh, series. And then at the five o'clock service... I'm going to be doing a two-month series looking at Jesus' mentoring and leadership of his disciples. Um, I've called it Jesus the Cell Leader. Um, I know they didn't talk about cells back then, but he had 12 men, didn't he? And uh, it's fascinating, and this is what we're going to be doing when you do a study of the Gospels, to see how Jesus shaped his disciples. You see, he wanted to reach the multitudes... But how did he reach the multitudes? By partnering with a small cell group of 12. I mean, think about it. When Jesus died and rose again, he didn't leave a very big church, did he? I mean, on the, on the, night of, on, on the day of Pentecost, how many people were gathering in that church service? 120. You know, a lot less than are here, than are here tonight. So 120, that's not many in one sense, if you think about Jesus who was preaching to thousands. But that's because he was working on 12 to reach the multitudes. That was his aim, his mentoring. We're going to look at his leadership and mentoring skills of of the 12. You notice in Jesus' life, we'll be looking at all of this, um, that the nearer he got to his cross, the less time he spent with the multitudes and the more time he spent spent with his 12. So we're going to be looking at... Jesus' mentoring of his disciples. This will be a great help for everybody, but also if you're a cell leader or you're in a cell, we are going to be looking at the greatest cell leader of all time and how he ran his cell and how he grew his cell and mentored his cell and released those men. Well, and the rest is history, isn't it? We're here today. So that's what's happening. Also, to let you know that from... This Friday, there is a new Friday evening service. It's called the Friday Evening Ministry Service. It's a service for everybody. That's going to be taking place Friday by Friday. I'm going to be doing this Friday. It's a time where we'll have ministry, and uh, we can go well into the evening. There's nothing stopping us ministering and waiting on the Lord. It's a, a soaking service, a ministering service, a preaching service, and that's going to be on Friday evening, starting this Friday, ready for all. Uh, the young adults, when they need, when they sometimes they meet here, sometimes they go out, but when they want to meet here, they're going to be in the lower hall. So every Friday night now is going to be Holy uh, Friday night ministry service. 
As we go on throughout the months, we'll use some of those Friday night services for net meetings or evangelism or special training, and that'll develop. But basically, just wanted to let you know about that. Wonderful. Well, if you have your, your Bibles with you, we're going to minister the Word and then minister out of the Word later on. I'd like you to turn to Genesis 26, verse 18. I spoke on this at the 5 o'clock, but I wanted to speak on this at the 7 o'clock as well. I felt strongly about it, and I'm sure the Lord will lead me in different ways. I want to speak about redigging the wells of life. Genesis 26, and we'll start at, sorry, at verse 12. Genesis 26, verse 12, we're looking at Isaac. Genesis 26, 12. Welcome to all those of you watching on the internet. Good to have you with us. Then Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. And the Lord blessed him. The man began to prosper and continuing, continued prospering until he became very prosperous. For he had possessions of flocks and possessions of herds and a great number of servants. So the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped up all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father, and they had filled them with earth. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you're much mightier than we. Then Isaac departed from there and pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water which they had dug in the days of Abraham his father. For the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. He called them by the names which his father had called them. Also Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found a well of running water there. Now, I think there's some themes here that I'd like us to apply to our life and these times, redigging the wells of life. We see that Isaac, at the beginning of this uh, reading, had come to a very comfortable and prosperous place in his life. I mean, he sowed in that land and reaped a hundredfold. That's not bad. And the Lord blessed him. That's not bad. And it didn't just say he began to prosper. It said he began to prosper and continued prospering until he became very prosperous. So Isaac is in a comfortable, prosperous place right now. And then Abimelech, the leader of the Philistines around him, comes up to him and says, look, go away from us for you're much mightier than we. And then Isaac does what he's asked and goes into this valley and all of a sudden he's in a totally different environment. He's in an environment where there is... A parched land, a desolate land, uninhabited land, unfruitful land. Why? Because there's no water there. There used to be water, but all the wells have been stopped up. So he is in a, a very, very precarious place. Because he doesn't just need water for himself. He needs water for his family, water for all his servants and herdsmen, and also for his great flocks. Now, when, when he moved to this place, he was in a situation where really it was life or death. I mean, it's not like he was at the nice end of town. 
and had to move to the not-so-nice end of town. It wasn't a move like that. He was in a place where it was inhospitable. It, it was impossible to live there because there was no water. So he was in a desperate place and desperately needed to find water. And we're going to come to that in a minute. That's the main thing I want to speak about. But, you know, the character of Isaac amazes me. I mean, some people don't spend much time speaking about Isaac. I mean, I know Abraham is the father of faith, and you can do great character studies on Abraham. I've done character studies in these services. I did a whole few months on Abraham once a few years ago. And Abraham's exciting. And, and Jacob is, is great fun to preach on. I mean, Jacob is, is, you know, he's a struggler. I mean, right at the beginning of the story, he's wrestling with his brother, isn't he, in the womb. And as his brother pops out, he's grabbing his ankle. And, and, and Jacob is up and down, and uh, he's manipulating and struggling. And also, Jacob is a fascinating story when he wrestles with God. And I spoke on that a few weeks ago. But Isaac, many people don't speak about Isaac. I've heard people say that Isaac actually was a very boring man. Not much, not much, not very interesting at all. But I think if we say that, we're missing something very profound. You see, a lot of Jacob's stories are his mistakes. His fighting with Esau, you know what I'm saying? His, uh, and Jacob and Isaac both had the promise, didn't they? Both had the blessing. God was with them. God gave them. But the way they went about pursuing the promise was totally different. You see, Jacob, he decided that he was going to get the promise that God had given him his own way. In fact, what he did to get the blessing is he, he used the garments of his brother Esau and the hands of Esau. He put hair on his hands and even deceived his father, didn't he? I deceived his father to get the blessing. I mean, do, do you think that was, that was God's will? No, of course not. So the thing about Jacob is that God was with him and God had given him the promise, but Jacob took him a long time to stop trying to get God's blessing through works of the flesh. That's what he was doing. I mean, he, he came as Esau. He should have, and, and then later on, we know, we know what happened. He had to run away because things got so bad. Then he went to Laban and, and Laban tricked him and... He got Leah instead of Rachel, and then in the end he went back, but when he got back he was frightened that his brother was still angry at him, so he immediately tried to figure out, you know, what shall I do? How, I've got to look after myself. He didn't trust God so much as try and figure it out for himself. So he split the group, just in case one got attacked. And then he sent some of his flocks ahead, and then sent the flocks in waves, so that when his brother Esau came... If the first bit of the flock came to him as a present and he accepted it, fine, he could, he could keep the rest. But if not, then he'd come to another, then he'd come to another. So he was constantly trying to figure it out and make it happen himself. And, and it wasn't until he finally got wrestled into submission and God touched him in his hip that he finally, you know what I'm saying, submitted to God. But Isaac's totally different. Isaac is a totally different character. And for me, Isaac is the clearest Old Testament picture of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Because, you see, Isaac wasn't a striver. 
Isaac knew the promise of God. And the way that he pursued the promise of God was not like Jacob, not even, and Abraham, of course, was a mighty man of faith, but not even like Isaac. Remember, Isaac even pursued, sorry, Abraham even at times pursued the promise through the work of the flesh, didn't he? Ishmael. But Isaac, Isaac wasn't perfect. He made his mistakes. I mean, he he told Abimelech that his wife was his sister. It was a bit like it because he was frightened. But he was a different person. I mean, you get this wonderful picture of him in Genesis 24, verse 63. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field in the evening and he lifted his eyes and looked and there the camels were coming. So you get this wonderful insight into Isaac. There he is. He's out there and he's meditating. He's praying. Isaac was a man of prayer. When things happened, he took them to God. He prayed to God. He said, God, you're the one that's given me the promise and you're the one that will bring it to pass. He didn't resort to the flesh. Uh, look at the, ty- look what the, the thing that we just read in uh, chapter 26, you know, uh, verse 16. Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us, you're much mightier than we. Well, I wonder whether if it was Jacob, Jacob would have said, yeah, that's right, you get lost. We are much mightier than you, so be quiet. Don't tell me what to do. I'll tell you what to do. So it was recognized. Isaac could have asserted his strength, couldn't he? He could have said, ah, get lost. We're not moving, and you can't make us. He was in a great, comfortable place of prosperity and blessing. He was far mightier than the Philistines, but he left. Why? Because he understood that his destiny was not dependent on man or environment. His destiny was dependent on God. That's why he could sow in famine and reap a hundredfold. He'd learnt that he didn't have to rely on his circumstances for the will of God to be done. He just had to trust God. And that's why you see him then come into this environment where he's just got to trust God. If we were to read on, you might know the story is, he digs one well, doesn't he? And then the other tribesmen come out and say, that's ours. Remember that? Then he digs another and they say, that's ours. And another, that's ours. And so there he is, even when he's digging wells, water for life, just to just to, to keep his family and sheep and truck, just to keep himself going. People are arguing over the wells. And what does he do? Does he fight back? No, he moves on and digs again, doesn't he? Moves on and digs again, moves on and digs again. Because he knows that God, God will bless him. He doesn't have to resort to fleshly means. And that's why I think Isaac is, is so powerful, because he's so spiritual. I mean, every time he responds, or nearly every time he responds, you see the fruit of peace. He's a peacemaker, not a fighter, is he? So they say, go away. He doesn't go, all right, I'm not going away. Let's fight for it. When they try and take his well, does he fight? Does he contend with them? No, he's a man of peace, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace. He's patient, long-tempered. He's patient. The patience of the man to dig is taken. To dig, it's taken. Just the, the patience. He didn't fight. He didn't, he didn't argue. He didn't do all the things that the works of the flesh are. Anger, um, ambition, uh, uh, warfare. 
No, it was love, joy, peace. It was faith and faithfulness to God. Amazing how he dealt with his situation. You'd have thought he'd been walked all over. He seems such a sensitive man. He seems such a quiet man. But you know what? He's a powerful man. And like I said, some people don't think his story is very interesting. But the only reason the other stories are, are interesting is because of the mistakes they made. Like I said, you know, if Jacob had been more like his father Isaac, perhaps his story would have been a little bit more straightforward. He'd have had his tests, but, but perhaps if he trusted God a little bit more, then try and get and make it happen by the flesh. So I think this is important, because I want to give you Isaac as a picture, because that's what God wants us to be. He wants us to be like Isaac. And here's another thing about Isaac I was thinking about. Remember, we talk about Abraham and the faith of Abraham when he went on the mountain to sacrifice who? Isaac. God says, sacrifice your son. But most scholars believe that Isaac wasn't some little baby kid, two, three, didn't know what was going on. But that Isaac was actually a grown young man, actually stronger than his father. And so we talk about Abraham and Abraham's faith when he sacrificed Isaac. But I think Isaac was partnering in that faith. I mean, Isaac said, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham, by faith, said, God will provide a sacrifice. And Isaac willingly submitted himself. I mean, do you think when Abraham bound Isaac, that Isaac was struggling? Get off me, Dad. Don't what you're doing. Leave me alone. Do you think Isaac was struggling? No. No, we know he wasn't. He was submitted to the will of God. This submission, but this was his power. I mean, you look at Jesus, and Jesus' greatest act of power was also his greatest act of submission, where he submitted himself to the cross and being crucified. If he'd wanted to, he'd have called legions of angels down, but Jesus was a lamb that was slain, wasn't he? He allowed himself to be punished. He did it because he loves us, and yet that was the most powerful act in history, the submission of Christ on the cross carrying our sins, being punished in our place so that we could go free if we believe. And there's Isaac doing the same thing. Isaac voluntarily submitting. A powerful man, a powerful man. It shows that true strength is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Love and gentleness and joy. These things are not weakness. But the thing about the fruit of the Spirit is that In order for the fruit of the Spirit to be victorious, there's got to be a God in heaven. You've got got to have great faith to operate the fruit of the Spirit. Great faith. Why? Because if there's no God, love, joy, peace, faithfulness, gentleness, kindness, these things, you just get walked over, you'll just be a mat. If there's no God. And you see, this is why people resort to fleshly, arguing, contentions and jealousies and divisions and ambitions. These are, the, these, these are the works of the flesh. Did I say fruit of the flesh? I meant works of the flesh. These are the works. Why? Because you don't actually believe that God's in control. You don't actually believe that if someone nicks your well, you don't have a well. So you've got to fight back. You've got to make it happen. The works of the flesh, at the heart of the works of all the flesh, is unbelief in God. But at the root of the fruit of the Spirit is faith in God. 
It's like, God, God you, you, you'll do it for me. And I believe that God, I'm laboring this because I believe that God wants to raise up an Isaac generation and an Isaac leadership. You see, sometimes in Christian life, Christian leaders are more like Jacob's than Isaac's. God's with them. God's given them a promise. God's got the anointing on them. But they're Jacob's and they are so concerned about getting what God wants for them or leading them that they begin to manipulate and use the works of the flesh to do the works of God. But I believe God is raising up people and a new generation and a new generation of leaders, I believe, that will be Isaac's. Oh, there will be Isaac. They will be Isaac. They'll just say, Lord, you're going to have to do it. Not that, they won't, not that they won't be active, but they'll be active in prayer. Like Isaac, he was found there in the... They'll be active in... They'll deal with things in prayer, not by the flesh, in prayer. I guarantee somebody that tries to do things according to the flesh is not a prayer warrior. Jacob was not a prayer. Do you know that? Not until that night when he wrestled with God. He didn't pray. He, he thought he could sort it out. He thought he could do it. So, anyway, I just wanted to, to, to emphasize the importance of Isaac because I feel that he is um, often overlooked. But we come back now to the Valley of Garan, and this is an environment that's parched, desolated, uninhabited, and unfruitful. And I be, believe that this can, be, this can be a picture of the church today and also possibly a picture of individual Christian lives today. You see... We live in desperate times. He was in a desperate time. And the most important thing is that we have the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives and in our churches. And could it be that there are wells that need to be redug in our lives and also redug in our nation? Wells of revival. You see, in verse 19, it says they found a well of running water, living water. The greatest need of the church today is an outpouring and reviving of the work of the Holy Spirit. Call it a revival, if you like. That is the hope of the church today. That's always the hope of the church, a revival. And without a revival, without this living water flowing on us and through us and out of us, we're lost. I mean, the church is powerless right now, powerless. If you, if you, you can say, well, there's little things happening here. Well, oh, come on, it's tiny. We're not even scratching the surface of the surface. Come on, everybody. We're not even scratching the sur surface of the surface. I mean, I wonder how many people are in church tonight. I mean, I know we're here today, thank God, but how many other... Few thousands, max tonight, Sunday night, Sunday morning, different maybe, but Sunday night tonight. I wonder how many believers are worshiping in cell groups. I wonder, not many, not not compared to the millions, not compared to the millions. If anybody thinks this is a Christian nation must have a screw loose. I'm talking about the price. He's got a screw loose. I mean, he doesn't believe in Christian morality, and then he says, "Stop being more Christian." The, the guy doesn't have a clue when it comes to the true faith. He doesn't have a clue. He's like Tony Blair before him. Tony Blair didn't have a clue. Worst thing Tony Blair ever did is say he believed in the Christian God. And then he said God told him to go to war. Thanks very much, my friend. <laughs> Do you know what? You, you, you don't act as a Christian in office. 
and then you say, you say that you're a Christian. Totally deceived. Have no idea about spiritual things. And we need to pray for them. You know, I'm not saying, you know, we need to pray for them that they get properly born again. And if, they're, if they may be born again, but properly born again, properly saved and properly filled with the Holy Spirit. You know what I'm saying? But, so we're not, we're not even scratching the surface of the surface. This land, Europe, is parched. It's like this place, it's parched. And here we are, we're like Isaac, or meant to be like Isaac. We're there, we're Isaac, and we're like, there's no water. It's a terrible situation, there's no, no life. Or maybe, let's take that away from the church, look at ourselves as individuals. You know, I'm aware that if you're here tonight, God is already moving in your life. Because for somebody in these days to come out to a service on a Sunday evening, it says something about you. Do you know that? It says something good. So I'm not here to have a go at you. You're, you're, you've come to a Holy Spirit ministry service because there's something in your heart that's hungry. And I, I commend you for that. I do. And I really love this service because the people are up for it. So, you know, I'm probably not speaking about you, but it's all degrees. We can all get, get higher in the Lord, can't we? But, you know, what about people? People who are in desperate need of the Holy Spirit to come and do something in their lives. I mean, to change them on the inside or, or to do something radical, to get them on fire for the Lord, to, to get them delivered from their sins. Thank God we're forgiven from our sins, but it's time to be delivered from our sins and those things that hold us down and hold us back. It's time for Christ to be formed, for us, for us to, to get out into new levels of consecration for God, new levels of faith, new levels of things, to, to rise from glory to glory. And could it be that, that, that there's many Christians that are struggling and, and they say, I need life, more God's life in me. And, and maybe they're going through the motions or maybe they're struggling and they're just thinking, God, I need more life. But maybe, maybe they're looking in the wrong places. Notice that Isaac... When he was in this situation, he didn't say to himself, okay, what we need to do is, is get in the water diviners, you know, the, water, the people that find water. We, we need to look for fresh water. In the end, they did get fresh water, but it was too late in the day to, to try and find new water. He said, I need to go back to history. This area used to have many wells. In fact, my father dug many wells here. We don't need to go and find new wells. What we really need is to redig the old wells. And I think that today in the church, generally speaking, people are dismissing the old wells because they've been stopped up. And they're saying we need something new. You know, we need a new teaching. We need to change the gospel to make it more relevant for the modern man. We need to take out the blood, take out the wrath of God. And we need to, to put some, we need to take out Christian moral. We need to take these things out. We need to shape it because man's moved on. Man's different than he used to be. This old time religion was for an old time. But the reason that people aren't coming to our churches, they say, is because the old wells don't work. What we need is a new well, a new way. 
a new message, a new method. Forget history. We need something new. And it's like they're trying to dig brand new wells and ignore the wells that were dug before. I mean, for example, I remember one Pentecostal theologian, and he was taking a seminar, and I was at that seminar, and uh, he was speaking about George Jeffries. Now, George Jeffries was the founder of Kensington Temple and the founder of the whole Elim Pentecostal movement. And next year we'll be celebrating 100 years of the Elim Pentecostal movement of Great Britain. And he founded this church and he went up and down the nation preaching the gospel with signs and wonders and miracles accompanying and starting churches of which this is one that we're part of. And filled the Albert Hall, miracles and healings, and just, just wonderful. And this theologian, who's meant to be Pentecostal, said, you know, if George Jeffries was alive today, he would not have the success that he had back then in the 20s and 30s. And the reason he wouldn't have that success, this man said, is that things have totally changed from when they were at that time. So he said, for example... In those days, in the 20s and 30s, there wasn't any television. Uh, uh, radio was relatively new. And so, in those days, the days of George Jeffries, people liked to go out to things. So, if you put on a big service at the Royal Albert Hall, people liked to go out and they would go to it because they don't have any televisions. If you had a crusade somewhere or a tent meeting, they'd all go to it because the culture was to go out to things. But today, everybody's got their TVs and got their entertainment systems, so they, they, they wouldn't flock to those meetings like they did then. That was the first thing he said. And then he said, and of course, he'd have to change his message because people wouldn't come to healing meetings like they did back then because they don't need to like they did back then. Because back then in the 20s and the 30s, when George Jeffries was praying for the sick and there was healings and miracles, well, they didn't have much medicine back in those days. There was no national health service back in those days. There were many strong diseases that they hadn't figured out yet. And so when they had healing campaigns, divine healing campaigns, it was like, well, there's there's no doctor we can go to or nobody understands this illness. So they all went hoping to get healed. Uh, but now it's totally different. Now we have NHS. We have medical breakthroughs. If you can afford it, there's Bupa. There's hospitals, all right? We might want them to be better, but they're on every corner. You've got GPs. It's all there. And so he was saying that George Jeffries, if he was ministering today, would not have anything like the success he had then, he would have to change. And he said the sort of things that George Jeffries would need to do today is minister to people's social needs, open food banks, uh, creches for the local uh, people around. That's how he would, he would have to work today to be successful. Now I've got I love food banks, you know what I'm saying? My mum uh, volunteers in a church food bank, I'm for food bank. That's all great, but that's secondary to me. That's secondary, important, but secondary. You see, he was wrong. And this is the thing, he had dismissed the old wells. And the reason he had done that is he had assumed that mankind has changed. I mean, just, just in 100 years or so, less than that, he said mankind has totally changed, therefore this message also must change, and the emphasis must change. 
And this is what we see in churches and church movements. As they look at empty churches and lack of power and lack of interest, I've already said we're not even scratching the surface of the surface, they say we need to do something totally new. So they tamper with the message. So now we have uh, a message of many people where everybody's going to heaven and God loves everybody. You don't have to flee from the wrath to come. And you don't have to worry. And, and God's holiness has been... God loves it just... You know, when you go on Facebook, which I do occasionally, and you look at all the posts that Christians put up, and most of them are like, I'm all right, you're all right, God's all right. <laughs> and some of them are, you're all right, everything's all right, don't worry about it, God loves you, everything's all right, you're fine, I'm fine. Things aren't fine, my friends. Things are desperate. <laughs> Things are desperate in Europe. I mean... You know, we're not scratching the surface of the surface. You're all right, I'm all right, he's all right, we're all all right, don't worry about it, we're all all right. Now, I understand the beginning of faith is that God unconditionally accepts you as you are. Isn't that, that, that's the beginning. That Jesus loves you as you are. Whoever you are, whatever you think you are, whatever you're doing, Jesus loves you. And Here's a free gift for you, salvation. All you have to do is believe in your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus died for your sins and you will be saved and accepted by God forever because of the blood of Jesus. Now, that's unconditional acceptance for all that believe and that never changes, never changes, okay? But that's the milk. What about the meat? You know, once you understand that God has accepted you because of Jesus, you don't just stay there. This was the problem with the Corinthian church. You see, the Galatians, the problem with the Galatians is that they had a crisis of assurance. The Galatians were, I don't know if I'm saved or not. I don't know if God accepts me or not. I don't know. Uh, what do I have to do for God to accept me? Do I have to obey the law and the regulations? And what, uh, do, do I have to be circumcised? Uh, do I have to stop eating pork? What do I have to do to know that you accept me? And Paul says, what are you doing? God accepts you just because you believe in Jesus. He accepts you because of Jesus, not because of you. So that was the Galatians. But the Corinthians, they were full of confidence. The Corinthians, they didn't doubt their salvation for one moment. On the contrary, they were so bold. They were so bold. Look at my gift. Look how God's blessing me. Look, look, how, look at the power. Look at the gifts. Oh, look at the preachers. I follow Apollos. Well, have you heard Paul preach? Oh, Apollos is better. And they were arrogant. They knew they were going to heaven, and they were going to heaven. But they were arrogant about it. They were like, I'm all right. You're all right. We're all right. God's all right. We're all all right. Amen. We're all all right. And while they were saying everything was all right, it wasn't all right. They'd missed the love, and they'd missed the fruit of the Spirit. You see, you'll never value anything you don't sacrifice for. You never value anything you don't sacrifice for. And so people are trying to dig new wells in some Christian stores and things and bookshops. You know, it's just a bunch of self-help books with the name of Jesus on them. Bunch of psychological, how you feel about yourself, psychology, self-help books. You know, the veneer of Christianity. Conferences with the new teaching that will set you free. The new revelation. The new prophecy that God just gave 
the prophetic man or woman's hour for power. And if you believe the word of the prophet at this conference, and it's probably about prosperity or breakthrough or blessing, probably something to do with you're all right, I'm all right, he's all right. And um, changing the... But what Isaac did is Isaac said, I've got to go back to where I know that there's water. Where I know that there's water. And he knew from history where the water was. And they went to those places. But the problem was, is that the land was parched. The water was there, but it couldn't be seen. It was unseen. This is the beautiful thing about our faith, that faith deals with the unseen, doesn't it? And manifests it. Faith sees. We, we walk not by sight, but by faith. And the problem is, is people are walking around and they're saying, there is no wells, there is no wells, there is no wells. And someone's saying, wait a second, there's some forgotten wells there. No, no, there is no wells. Can't see any water, can't see any water. No, we know where the wells are, but we need some diggers. We need to re-dig the wells of revival in our own lives and also in the nation. We need to re-dig the wells of life. We can't see them, but it doesn't mean that they're not there. But the Philistines have cluttered them up, filled them in with rubbish. And think about this. What have the Philistines of today, or spiritual Philistines, what have they stopped up these wells of revival with? Well, they put rubbish in there. All the rubbish that's out there in the Christian world, all the rubbish teaching, the rubbish prophecy, the rubbish, I'm all right, you're all right. All the, there's so much rubbish in the Christian world today. Rubbish preaching, rubbish books, rubbish conferences. And what these things are doing is they're filling up the wells with rubbish. Rubbish. Nothing like the gospel, nothing like the things. And it's filled up with rubbish. And what we need to do is we need to dig the wells. You see, mankind has not changed. Not changed. Mankind is exactly the same as he was a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, three thousand years ago, four thousand years ago. Don't believe this evolutionary lie. It's got into the church. You see, man has changed. Man has, at essence, humankind has remained exactly the same. Exactly the same. I mean, we're celebrating 100 years of Pentecost, Elam, next year, but we're we're only celebrating 100 years since one of the worst world wars that ever took place. You say, why do you say man hasn't changed? Mankind has not changed. At the heart of man are the same sins that have always been since Man fell. Sins of sexuality. Sins of greed. The desire for comfort and pleasure. Inappropriate comfort and pleasure. Warring and fighting. All these things. Greed. All these things. They were there with Cain and Abel, weren't they? The human... Man has not changed. You say he has. He's grown in science. It's not changed him on the inside, though. In fact, the more we learn about science, the more God is speaking to us. I mean, think about those people that used to think the earth was flat. And the Bible says the wrath of God is revealed against 
ungodliness because who God is is clearly displayed by creation. And if those that thought the earth were flat were under the judgment of God because there was still enough in creation to point to God, how about today when we know so much more about God's universe and creation? I tell you, we know we are under a greater judgment in Romans 1. The wrath of God is revealed even greater for those people that know more about God's world. Micro world, macro world, universe, biology, cells. My, you know, We know more about God's world, therefore we are doubly guilty in not recognising the designer behind the whole of the created order. We've not changed. We've not changed. We're exactly the same. The issues of the heart today are exactly the same as 100 years ago, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago. Exactly the same. God's not changed either. Repackaging the gospel, taking out the bits we don't like. God's not changed. Mankind has not changed. God is the same yesterday, today and forever and the needs of fallen humanity have not changed one bit whatsoever and the means of God reaching mankind have not changed one bit whatsoever. The message is still the same and the method is still the same. Preaching and witnessing that Jesus died on the cross for the sins of mankind. And anyone who believes that Jesus died on the cross for their sins and rose again and is alive shall be saved. That's the answer. It's the same answer. Now, we can use modern methods, television, radio, all those things are great. Uh, and I'm not disparaging those, but it's not changed. We need to go back to these wells and we need to redig these wells. We need to get back to the wells. We need to seek God. You know... God always works through revival and outpourings. I mean, throughout history you see this. I mean, right at the beginning. Can you imagine the Acts of the Apostles without Pentecost? Can you imagine that? I was trying to imagine it earlier today. Imagine the story of the Acts of the Apostles without the revival that came on the day of Pentecost. And the thing was is that Jesus, did, Jesus said, tarry or wait in Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high. So what was happening was they were meeting, not many of them, only 120 in the end, that whittled them down, didn't it? 120, Jesus, all that work Jesus did. And in the end, he only had a church of 120. We're more successful than him. <laughs> you know what I'm saying. It's the Holy Spirit that does it. But you know what I'm saying, 120. But what they're doing, they're seeking God for revival. It's like, you can't do it without the Holy Spirit. You can't do it. Don't go off. Wait. Wait until you're... So they begin waiting on the Lord. They begin praying for the Lord, praying for the outpouring. And you see, seeking God's outpouring personally in our lives, personal revival... And also, corporate revival in the church and then in, in the land. You know what I'm saying? Seeking it is the healthiest thing that you can do. You see, what can happen when we don't have a vision for personal revival? 
or church revival or God's... When we don't have a vision for a fresh Pentecost, then what happens is we just tolerate ourselves and those that are around us. We just go on doing church and praise God, something happens, great, someone gets saved or a blessing happens, a miracle happens. All that's great, but it's very ordinary. And we just settle for that, settle for that, settle for that. And we settle for where we are. We hope to get a bit better, a bit stronger, get a bit of a breakthrough, but we settle. Why? Because we're not expecting something dramatic to change us or to change the church. We're just hoping things will get better, not worse. Many churches are finding things are getting worse and not better. And if you just keep your head above the water, it seems like you're doing well in these days, in many quarters. And we're just, and nobody, and the spirit of expectation's not there. Nobody, if I can put it this way, is expecting the day of Pentecost. In fact, some of us already think we've had it because we speak in tongues. So we've done that, been there. And so there's no expectation. But you see, as they were seeking God for the outpouring, God was preparing them for it. Jesus didn't say, look, just go back to your fishing, go back to your normal life, and hey, I'll pour out the Spirit when I'm ready. Nothing you need to do. No preparation needs to be happening. No change needs to happen. No waiting, no seeking. Don't worry about it. Just get on with it. You're all right. I'm all right. We're all okay, and it'll happen. No, no, it wasn't wasn't like that. There was a seeking. There was a desire. There was a realization that without the Holy Spirit, we can't do it. There was an understanding that what we have is not enough who we are, it's not enough, it's not enough, it's not enough. But for many, it is enough. Because we say, you know, I'm on fire for Jesus. You hot for the Lord? Yes. How do you know? Because I've taken the temperature of those around me and I'm one degree higher. Yeah, but there's freezing zero. And so what we do, we like temperatures. It's like, well, how am I doing with those around me? And if you're just ahead of the group, you're, you're in revival. But the thing is, What we really need is the Holy Spirit to tell us. The Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, show me where I am and give me a vision of where I can be. I don't want to date my temperature from a lukewarm church. Do you understand the church in Great Britain is lukewarm at best? Do you understand that? Do you understand that? You say, no, it's not. Well, how come it's so ineffective? You say, well, we're not lukewarm at Kensington Temple. Oh, really? Really? I don't see hundreds and thousands of people getting saved amongst us. I'm including myself in this. We need to shake ourselves, wake ourselves, stir ourselves. Things are not okay. He's not okay, I'm not okay, and you're not okay. <laughs> and that's healthy to look at it like that. It's healthy. Because, you know, RT's been speaking about this midnight cry, hasn't he? I believe it. I believe it. He says that he fully expects, I mean, he can't prove it, because he fully expects to be around when it happens. I believe it. But because I believe it, it's having a profound effect on the inside of my life. In other words, sometimes there's a strong, profound, internal destabilization in my life. When I think about these things and it comes heavy on me and that there's going to be a midnight cry, there's going to be an end time revival and 
are we ready for it? Are we preparing for it? And it comes heavy on me. It comes so heavy on me sometimes. In the middle of the night, it wakes me up and I start, it comes heavy on me. And there's an internal destabilization. The comfort is gone in those moments. And I begin to see things in a different type of perspective. I begin to view myself with a different perspective. Tears begin to well up my eyes in these times when I think of my own life. Tears begin to well up my eyes when I think about the states of London and Britain and the souls. And sometimes it's so heavy, I think it's unhealthy. I said to my wife, I said, times, when these times happen, I get worried because I'm thinking, this is either very good or I'm going to end up in a mental hospital. Why? Because there's so much destabilizing going on. Why? Because I was so stable. Well, you say that's relative. Yeah, it is. But I was so relatively stable in what was happening. Revival, oh, yeah, yeah. But when you get to get to grips with it and God begins to get to grip with you, 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 you get, I'm not saying I'm anywhere like Isaiah, nowhere near, but God begins to undo you. Isaiah said, I'm undone. I saw the Lord and I was undone. It means he was totally, internally destabilized. But this is a healthy thing. Because I am convinced, because I can't promise that revival is going to come in our generation. can't promise it. I'm not God. But I can promise you this. If you long for revival, it will be the healthiest thing that will ever happen to you. Because the longing and the desiring for revival changes you. It changes you. It changes your character. It changes your perspective. It changes your prayer life. It changes your values. It changes the, the things that used to be important become pettier. The things of the world aren't as important as they used to be. Do you hear what I'm saying? It, it doesn't happen overnight, but it's a working. But unfortunately, many Christians are so backslidden. I'm not speaking... Many Christians are so backslidden, they actually think they're okay. They, they, they actually think that they are close to God. They actually think that they're okay. They're slumbering in sleep. God wants us to dig. You see, God has placed a well deep in your soul. We talk about the church getting back and redigging. Redigging, getting back to the wells. What's the redigging? Get rid of the rubbish and get back to basics. Get back to the gospel. Get back to prayer. Get back to seeking God in the old time. Get back to the book of Acts and don't say it's history. Say it's a model for today. Seeking God, praying, believing God, sanctifying ourselves. Fruit of the Spirit. Let's get back to the New Testament. New Testament Christianity for today. That's the redigging of the wells. And God has put a well in you. Jesus said, out of your innermost being, the Greek word is koilos, and it means empty cavity. Out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living life. Do you notice that when they dig the well, it wasn't a still well. It says it was a well of running water. A well of running water. Living water is running water. Do you know that? I was saying at the five o'clock that I just recently bought um, a big goldfish bowl, about that big. And they said, 
make sure you put in a filter and make sure, some, and make sure it's put in so that the top of the water is moving. You have to put in a, a mechanic and make sure the top of the water is moving around. It doesn't have to bubble. It just needs to move. Why? Because they say if you, if you don't keep the water moving at the top, then it won't oxygenate itself and the fish will die. And I don't want little Darth and Vader to die. I've got Darth, he's a little black goldfish, and Vader, he's a white one. Darth and Vader, I don't want them to die. So I've got to make sure that that water is living, moving water. You hear what I'm saying? And so God has imparted a well deep in your soul. But is it clogged up with rubbish? I'm not asking if you're perfect or not. I'm just saying, are the wells a bit clogged? Because I think corporately, if we look at the Church of Europe as a whole, we've got our wells, not just the wells of river, but the wells in our own lives. Generally speaking, we need to get, we need to get down, don't we? We need to dig down deep. We need to let the Holy Spirit and the Word of God dig down deep until we hit that moving living water and it starts to bubble up and flow through us and out of us, digging a personal well of revival. And you know the things that block that up. I don't need to go into things like offense and, and backsliding and coldness to the Lord and bitterness. Basically, the works of the flesh clog it up, but the fruit of the Spirit keep it, keep it flowing, keep it coming out of us. Now, this is evident throughout church history that God moves... In revivals, that the book of Acts without Pentecost would not be very good reading. Can you imagine it? They waited on the Lord, on the day of Pentecost, nothing happened. So they thought, well, you know, when Jesus was around, we used to go in his name and cast out demons and talk about the kingdom. And we had a bit of power, didn't we, Peter? Yeah, we, yeah, we did. We, we cast out demons. I mean, the seven sons of Sceva, didn't they? They weren't even born again. But they used the name of Jesus to a certain effect until they hit a big demon who hit them back. And this is the thing. You see, we, are, we have some authority in the church, some authority in our lives, but we can only deal with the little demons. We need to shift spirits of nations. There are grad, grades of demons, and, and we can deal with demons, but we, we've come, we've got... We've, We've hit against some demons that we can't shift. Demons that we can't shift. Like the disciples said, we can't shift this one, Lord. We, we, we've shifted others, but we can't shift this demon. And Jesus says, this type only come out by prayer. In other words, you need a different level of authority in the secret place to shift this. And God wants the church to seek him so that we can have the authority and the anointing to shift bigger demons and bigger strongholds. Because that's why we're frustrated. We're trying to cast out the enemy. We're trying to bring down the enemy. And we're just hitting and it seems like nothing's happening. Why? We need an increase in power and authority. So imagine the book of Acts with no power, no, no, no renewal. They went out on the day of non-Pentecost. And three people decided to follow them. They prayed for boldness and none came. Stephen stood up to preach and didn't know what to say. And his face didn't shine. You hear what I'm saying? Again and again and again. Throughout 
Acts of the Apostles, it was the outpouring that moved the church forward. And it wasn't long after the Acts of the Apostles that things got grim again. It wasn't long after the Acts of the Apostles where people were being bishops and getting into like all sorts of rituals. Not long, not long. But then God sends revivals, sends awakenings, and he always starts with the people seeking him. You see, we're not seeking revival. We are, but we're seeking the God who revives. We're seeking the Holy Spirit's outpouring. And he always, when it happens, he always chooses the people. You think of the, the Pentecost. that They were seeking God in that Bible school in Topeka, Kansas. They were seeking God for the power, and he sent it. Time and time again in the history of revivals, Revivals can come in many shapes, forms, and sizes, but they're all basically a type of repeat of the day of Pentecost. All. It's the model. I mean, I encourage you, it's only three pounds, we're almost giving them away now, to get this book I wrote 12 years ago called Land of Hope and Glory, British Revival Through the Ages. You can get it for three pounds. And what I did in that book was I, uh, I went through revivals from right in the first time that the gospel came to this land through the Middle Ages right up to 100 years or so ago. And I did the revivals. And I thought, and the reason I did it then was at the time, if you wanted to learn about a revival, you usually had to get some old-fashioned big book and you had to read and try and get the best bits out of it. It was hard work. Or you get some slither of a mention that was totally superficial. So I thought it would be good to go through the major British revivals and just give you a flavor of how, what was happening before, how it came about, what happened. And when you go through chapter after chapter, they're all different, different places, different people. They're all different, but they're all the same, you know what I'm saying? The principles were there, the darkness was there, the coldness of the church, but then a group of people had an encounter with God, a Pentecost-type encounter, whether they spoke in tongues or not is, is not the point, but an encounter with God that had an effect on them like it did on the day of Pentecost as they sought God and cried out to him in prayer. They had their Pentecost and then things moved. And, and, and it's amazing, this ebb and flow of revival. So what I'm saying today is that we should dig the wells of revival. We need to go back, not, we don't need to find new paths, we need to go back to the old paths that are hidden. I used to live in a small village in North Yorkshire, and I went back a number of years ago, I hadn't been back for many, many years, I went back, and I went back to the hills where I used to play, and the quarries where, where I used to play, and the hills were still there, but I noticed that there were some areas and some paths that I used to run down and play down as a child that were totally overgrown. And when I went to see some of these paths, I had to, and I could see if I pushed all the grass away, I could see the old paths in the 70s that were totally clear when I was a little boy in the 70s, going around on my chopper and all that lot. And I could see, and I would go up, and then the paths that would go up the hills that were there, that we would go up into the... And I could see it, but they were all hidden. Anybody else, a new, a new child, my age, seven, eight, nine, whatever now, they wouldn't even know those paths existed. I knew because I'd been there. Now, it, 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 you know, what we need to go is go back to the old paths and clear them again. They're, they're still there, they're hidden. We need to go back to the old wells that are still there. 
You say, I don't see them. Believe me, they're still there. The old paths, the old wells. And walk and clear out the old paths and walk on them. The doctrines and truths of God, the ways of God, the way that God acts through sacrifice and prayer and faith and, and, and love. And clear out the old paths and walk on them again. And get the debris out of the wells of our lives and, and dig again corporately as churches the old wells of prayer, faith, witness, word. And we're going to find that we are preparing ourselves to carry what God wants to pour out. I said from this platform a few weeks ago, uh, when someone said, oh God, send revival now. And I'm saying, could you just wait a bit, Lord? He said, Bruce, should God send revival now? No, could you just wait a bit, Lord? Why? Because it'd be great if we could be a little bit more prepared in our own hearts. Because the concern is, is that, I mean, some leaders get 50 people in their church and they think they're Billy Graham walking around like they're like the king of the hill. What are they going to do when they start getting thousands? Petty jealousies, you know what I'm saying? What are we going to do if we don't pray now? Are we going to pray when, it's all, when, when we get into that place of prosperity, when it's all there, all moving? Are we suddenly going to start digging deep in discipleship? If the glory and the power fell now, were we sudden? We need a work of preparation that will work into a revival. And often revivals start, don't they, with deep convictions. That's where it's deep convictions. Deep works. God wants to do deep works. But in order for him to do a deep work, you have to believe that he needs to do a deep work in you. Far too many people don't think that they need a deep work in their life. Far too many. I know I need a huge, deep work of the Holy Spirit in my life. And that's the best place I've ever been in my life. That knowledge, that knowledge has put me in the, in the healthiest place I've been. The knowledge of my need. The knowledge of my need. The knowledge that I need the Holy Spirit. The knowledge that I need him to work a deep work in my life. A deep work in your life. A deep work. The knowledge, the awareness the growing awareness, the growing awareness of, of the need of God to do a work of dismantling and internal change, it's a good place to be in. Seek the Lord for personal revival. Seek the Lord for times of refreshing, but not just the blessing. Seek the work of God in your life, my friends. Seek the work of God. I believe in some of these evenings we're going to spend more time letting God work. But I just feel I've got to release this today. And we should spend more time ministering here. And we will, but not tonight. Because the, the work of God in your life, a deep work of the Spirit, deep, 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 deep. An awareness of the workings of the Spirit. An awareness of the workings of the Spirit. Holy Spirit, we invite you to do a deep work in our hearts. We invite you, Lord. Do it on the inside. We don't want external chastening. We want internal. We want you to come in and we want you, if it means waking us up, if it means showing us some ugly things, show us it. God, don't let us drift into oblivion, thinking that I'm all right, you're all right, we're all right. God, do something deep. Lord, if we were to be judged 
If, what I mean, if we were to be compared, Lord, with the great saints, the great peoples of God, the great moves of God, not just the Apostle Paul and Peter, but the everyday believers of past revivals. If we, if we were to be compared to them, would we be dismayed? Do we think of ourselves higher than we ought? Would the best of us be like a new believer to some of these saints that carried your glory? You're not asking us to be Wesley or Whitfield. I'm not talking about General Booth. I'm talking about those that are in the army. Those that are in the army. Forget God's generals. Let's be God's foot soldiers. That's where the work is done. God, we invite you to, to destabilize us for a blessing. To destabilize us. Destabilize us spiritually, Lord. We're too stable. We're too stable. We're too stable. Lord, by your grace and mercy, be gentle with us. But let there be an internal process of destabilization by the Spirit of God. That will cause us to become a people that will long for the outpouring. Not just say what we're meant to say, sing what we're meant to sing. And, and, and talk about revival, but Lord, to long for an outpouring in our life. To long for an outpouring in our church. For long for an outpouring in this nation. An outpouring of life, the wells of life to spring up. God, Holy Spirit, this is the greatest thing that you could do. Not a miracle of healing, but thank you for those. But an internal working of convicting, strengthening power in our lives. Do it, Lord. Do it, Lord. Do it in this generation. Don't miss us out, Lord. May we be sensitive. May our hearts be softened by your Spirit. Don't give up on us, Lord. Don't give up on us, Holy Spirit. Don't give up on us. Don't give up on us in our wicked ways and our self-centeredness. Don't give up on us, Lord. We need you to come. Don't give up on us when we think we're okay. Don't give up on us, Lord. You haven't given up on us yet. Don't give up on us now. Don't let us wander in the wilderness. Fit us for the promised land. Fit us for the promised land. Move on us, Lord. Shape us, Lord. Work in us, Lord. Show us things. Show us things. Reveal yourself to us, Lord. Lord, Holy Spirit, help us. We don't want to make you in our own image. We don't want to box you in. We want to meet with you. Meet with you. Meet with you. Meet with you in the midnight hour. Meet with you in the heart. Meet with you in the word. We want to meet with you, Holy Spirit. We know, we know, we know that there'll be experiences like Isaiah. We know we'll feel that we're undone. But we're secure in your eternal love for us. We know we're going to heaven. But we want some heaven down here. We know we're going in the arms of the Father. That's been settled, but God, we want you to come down. We want to work on us. Lord, we want to be undone. We want to be undone so that we can be made up in, your, in the image of Christ. We want to be destabilized. We don't want to go on as we are. We don't want to just see the ordinary work of the Spirit week by week. We're grateful for that, but it's not enough. We don't want to be those that have a name and a reputation. We don't want to do it. We don't want to do it. We want life. We want to drink from the wells of the past. We ask for a visitation of the spirit of the past, the visitation of the spirit in the old days, Acts of the Apostles, that which we've read of, that which we've studied, that which we've heard. 
We want a visitation of the Holy Spirit. We want a visitation of the Holy Spirit. A holy visitation of Spirit, a visitation. A stirring of the Spirit, Lord, Holy Spirit, we invoke you. We invoke you to come and do a work in us. To come and show us, grant us, be merciful to us, Lord. Be merciful to us, Lord. Be merciful to us, Lord. We know we're not worthy. We know we're not worthy of a work. We know we're not worthy. We know we're not worthy. Why should you visit us? We know we're not worthy, but we're asking anyway. We're hoping that even in the asking, it's you that is causing us to ask. Well, it's you. We're believing that perhaps these faint desires come from you. Perhaps. Perhaps these dreams, these desires, these longings, no matter how faint they may be, perhaps they're from you, Lord. Perhaps it's you that's doing something. However faint, however little, maybe it's not us of ourselves, but maybe it's God. Oh, stir it into flame, Lord. Stir it into flame, Lord. Lord, we've had the actions of revival. We've had the shouts of revival. We've had the externals. We want the internal working of the Holy Spirit. We want you to come into our hearts and do something of God. We want God to come into our hearts. We want the working of the Spirit. It can't be done by man. It can't be done by woman. It can't be worked up, but it can be worked out. We want a deposit of God. We don't want vain language, vain crying. We know we're meant to ask for the Holy Spirit. We're Pentecostals. But we're asking for the Holy Spirit. We're asking for Him to come into our lives with transforming power, with reviving power, transforming power, Lord. We're asking for a move of God in the hearts of your people tonight. We're asking for a move, a visitation, a visitation, a visitation of the Holy Spirit. We're asking for a moving, a shaping. Oh, Holy Spirit, come upon your people and do your work. Lord, we don't want to stay where we are. We don't want to paddle in the shallows where the tiddlers are. We want to go out into the deeps where the whales are, the big fish. Oh, Holy Spirit. Oh, Holy Spirit. Hear the cry of your church. Holy Spirit. Pour out your Spirit, Father. Yeah, let the glory fall in our hearts. Burning, cleansing, flame of God. Waken us, Lord. Oh, let it flow. Inside work. Oh, glory to God. Let the Word of God, let it burn into our lives. No more Bible studies, revelation studies. No more quiet times. Deep calling to deep, the sound of your waterfall. Holy Spirit, we call upon you. We call upon you, not some fake Holy Spirit, the real thing. 
We're calling on the real Holy Spirit to come in mercy and grace to work in your church. Work in your church. Work in your church. Workings of God. The workings of the Spirit. The workings of the Spirit. Father, send your Spirit. Lord, send your Spirit. The workings, internal workings of the Spirit. The convictions, the outpourings, the words of Spirit and life. The wells unstopped. Oh, hallelujah. Oh. Get in the mix of it, or I don't want to get in the mix of it, or I don't want to get in the mix of it, or I don't want to get in the mix of it, or I don't want to get in the mix of it, or I don't want to get in the mix of it, or I don't want to get in the mix of it, or I don't want to get
down because God is going to do you if God works in your heart and shows you things he's not coming to condemn he's coming to gloriously transform and I believe that we are stepping into something new in these days something that's real something that's real something that is really real that's going to happen in your life in these days God bless you God bless you see you next week